Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we all can do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 7th, 2021, and I've got an interesting interview for you today. I do not have someone that has a website or a blog or a YouTube channel or a company or anything like that. I have a gal named Suzanne Roberts, and she's going to talk about systemic control and breaking free. She's just a regular person who has a background in computer, uh, computer engineering and computer network and database analysis and software engineering. And she's awesome. And she just took a, a systems look at the systems of control, drew her own conclusions, and has decided that, you know, maybe it would be better if we didn't partake in those systems any more than we absolutely had to. And maybe it would be better if we backed off enough to see those levels of systemic control for what they are. Um, and it's just a great discussion. So great that I'm going to go really fast through the intro because this interview went almost two hours. And you guys know I don't do two-hour interviews. It just doesn't happen. It never happens. Well, it happens occasionally. It happens when I have a really great guest that has a really interesting conversation. So let's get on to that as quickly as we can. Before we do, I want to remind you about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is the Wealth Steading Podcast with John Pugliano. There's a reason that John Pogliano has been part of this community since, I believe, 2011 or 12. It's about that time. It was whenever I did uh, the first uh, prepper show I ever did out in uh, Salt Lake City. He came and met me there and told me he was about to launch a business as an investment manager, uh, a.k.a. a financial advisor. And he knew I called those guys financial liars, and he said he was doing things a little bit differently and that I wouldn't refer to him that way. I took him at his word, and over time we became good friends. He's been a member of the Expert Council here a long time. He's a sponsor of the show. He's been on numerous interviews. If I have a question about money, he's who I turn to, and I suggest that you do the same. You can learn more about John at Wealthsteading. Pod, uh, at, I'm sorry, Wealthsteading.com to find the Wealthsteading podcast with John Pogliano. Next up today, ButcherBox.com. I'm eating ButcherBox ribeyes for dinner tonight. And the ribeyes are because that's what Dorothy took out of the freezer. Uh, ButcherBox is because that's pretty much almost all the meat we eat anymore because they're such an awesome sponsor that when we said, hey, they said to me, hey, we can pay you in meat or money. What do you prefer? I said meat. And I was skeptical. It was hard to win me over into the fold with ButcherBox. I don't just take a sponsor because they want to be on the show. I very seldom have space available, but they made a good case. I said, here's what we're going to do. We'll send you a box of meat, and you judge it for yourself. And they did, and I was like, okay, this is, this is amazing. Grass-fed beef, pastured pork, pastured poultry, amazing seafood, all available, and you control everything. You can have a small box or a big box. You can have a small box and add stuff on when you want. You can get a box every month, or you can get a box every other month, and you can change your mind along the way. And if you're an MSB member, you'll get $10 off every box forever, which is, what, $120 a year in discounts just by being an MSB member. So they are great. And I promise you, if you come here and I cook you a steak, it's nine times out of ten, it will have come from ButcherBox.com. With that, let's go ahead and get into things today and uh, bring our special guest on, again, Suzanne Roberts. She spent her professional career 
and software engineering. She performed tasks that encompass full lifecycle development of architecture, requirements and design to coding, testing, implementation, training, and documentation in that world. Uh, and she, again, has, has taken that mindset and started looking at the systems of control here. And since doing so, she's spoken on several podcasts to educate people on how to navigate the Great Reset. She's provided a foundation of this. Is it, it calls it basically politely exiting the system by not feeding the beast. Suzanne's philosophy is one of self-responsibility and personal freedom within the rules of law, but the rules specifically of natural law. And with that, hey, Suzanne, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm glad to have you on today. We're going to be talking about basically systems of control, why people allow themselves, even when they recognize those systems of control, to remain within them, and, and what we can do to break that. Before we do that, though, nobody here knows who Suzanne is. So who is Suzanne? Like, how did you, you know, what's your kind of professional background? How did you get into that? And how did it lead you to kind of where you are now? Yeah, so I'm a systems analyst. Um, I've been in IT my entire adult career, which is 35-plus years. So I've run the gamut of the entire life cycle. Um, I've been an architect, requirements, gathering, which is like translating a foreign language, <laughs> um, design of systems, programming, testing, implementation, data conversions, documentation, training, and, of course, the fallout afterwards. So I've seen... You know, and I've built several systems pretty much on my own. So I've seen, you know, my own design flaws and how to correct them. So after, you know, years and years of this, it's pretty easy to see, you know, what things are built into the system and what things are, oops, we made a little bug and we'll fix it. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. I've also um, spent the last several years understanding um, you know, the system of control much better. I always knew something was off. But until I started studying natural law and the common law stuff and how the courts are set up, and it all just kind of came clear that all of this is actually baked into the system. And when people say it's by design, it actually means a lot. So, you know, one of the things somebody once said to me, and I, I think this is also a George Carlin quote, is the systems work perfectly. You know, they work exactly as they're designed. It's just that we are not the intended beneficiaries, and that's the part we don't quite understand. Definitely. So how would you say a background in something like software engineering prepares you to analyze the problems of control that are going on in today's world? You know, at a very simple level, I look at things like, you know, how they're categorizing COVID deaths. And as a data collection point, I can see that they're never going to get valid numbers because uh, Deborah Burks gets up there and says, if you're in hospice and you're about to die, but you come up with COVID, well, that's a COVID death. Well, I think anybody with a brain can see that that's not a legitimate COVID death. Um, you know, but they're categorizing it as such. And then the data all gets lost. Um, data quality, data collection, um, you know, how you store the data, the, if you put too much data into each data point, I know this is getting a little too much, but these are all the things that matter if you want to actually have legitimate information. And when I see what the government's doing, 
the way they're collecting the data and the things I've studied, like at the CDC, it's it's not designed for quality data. No, it's not. It's actually, in my opinion, and I did at the beginning of this, I'm kind of an Excel guru, so I did a massive amount of data analysis of trends and what have you, and I was pulling the data they were giving, and even the data that they were giving basically said, hey, we're being stupid about the way we're handling this. But the more I pulled the raw data and investigated the source data and where it was coming from and what was considered a death, what was considered a hospitalization, was actually the the converse of what you're saying, good data. It was, it was so bad that one could only call it intentionally bad data. Uh, the hospitalizations, I can't speak for other states on this, but I'm pretty sure it's the same. I know for a fact, I've confirmed from multiple sources within the state's own system that this is a fact. If a COVID hospitalization in the state of Texas is any patient in the hospital that has tested positive for COVID. So, and of course, they're testing every single person admitted to the hospital. So a person breaks their leg, goes to the ER, they say, yeah, it's a pretty bad break. We're going to have to admit you because we need to do uh, orthopedic surgery. Test positive for COVID during COVID hospitalization. When you're doing that, and I, I understand that there might be a legitimate reason for that number, but when that's your public-facing number, what is the average, you tell me, what does the average person think when it says 1,600 people are in the hospital for COVID in, in the state of Texas? Right. They think, oh, my gosh, this is a bad issue. There's 1,600 people on ventilators, right, you know, mm-hmm. and they're, they're backing up a refrigeration truck because the morgue's overloaded, and it's just not the case. And it turned out that most of the people there for COVID were sitting alone in a room on oxygen waiting to either recover or die. It wasn't even what they made that out to be. And so when, when the state is providing this data and you know what's going on behind it, I don't think we can, like generally I look at it as incompetence, I always say incompetence before malice, but my gut in this is this is, this is intentional. What, what do you think? Well, that actually sets me up because <laughs> <laughs> the way I look at these systems, um, we need to understand what a system is, right? It's a set of business rules and workflows and data flows and policies and hierarchical structures and many other parts, and they're all put together to produce a goal. So when you design a system, um, you're designing it for a goal. And what I've seen with the government systems and the corporate systems is the stated goals and what they're actually accomplishing don't align. And that tells me that their true goals are not the stated goals. The stated goals are what they're trying to sell us on. The true goals are what's allowed to happen. So when we see what's allowed to happen, when we see the unintended consequences or the collateral damage, those are two big buzzwords, that if those things are harmful and they're allowed to continue, you're looking at the true goals, right? So, well, that's a, that's a salient point. If it was due to incompetence, even the incompetent person would go, oh, crap, look what's happening. We need to change. Exactly. The, the watching someone be run over by a bulldozer and allowing the bulldozer to run over the next person pretty much means you, you wanted the bulldozer to run people over. Right. So all of us non-medical, non-science people, 
we all know, you know, that the PCR test was never designed to test for viruses, and the, the higher you run the the cycle rate, the more false positives you're going to get. We already know this. Fauci knows this, yet it's allowed to continue. And, and just for those that don't know, the person that told us that was the guy that invented it. Who conveniently died in August of <laughs> Yeah, conveniently. Yeah. <laughs> I read his his biography, autobiography. It was very interesting. He was he was definitely onto things. So, um, if anyone has time, it's called um, "Dancing Naked in the Mind Field." Oh wow! Something like that, Carrie Mullis. It's good. That's just a little side note. So, you know, when we're dealing with these systems, it's like that book. Um, that was, came out, I don't know, in the 80s or 90s. He's just not that into you. And that was like, it kind of hit me upside the head because, you know, I'd, I'd date guys and they'd talk all sweet and then, and then they wouldn't come through with things, right? And until I heard that book title, it's like, oh, they're just making it up. They don't really, they're really not that into me. I get it now, right? But this is what the government's like. They tell you all these wonderful things. You know, the politicians run for office. Trump's up there saying everything we all wanted to hear, and then what does he do? Not much. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm not political. I, I've gotten out of the political system, so I'm equal opportunity bashing of all of... That's uh, why you can be. Right. Right? Like, like it, it's, just, it's the same in every profession, too, like, whether it's a profession or just being involved. My wife was a nurse for 20-odd years. Most pro-vaccine person you ever met until she left. And now I would say she has more questions about vaccinations than I do. She's more on the anti-side than I am because you can't see it when you're in it. That's exactly right. I mean, we look at the medical profession. What do they do? Back in the 17, 1800s, they formed the AMA to run out of business all of their competition herbalists, homeopaths, there's a huge book documenting um, this whole process of how they made this concerted effort because the people were healing with, with the alternate methods. And so the AMA got together and they started, you know, lobbying for legislation. It's like, why is, why is it illegal to give, you know, tell somebody, oh, well, this herb worked for me, and all of a sudden you can go to jail for practicing medicine without a license. That's absurd. But this is how they build in the system. They they created they took over all the homeopathic medical schools back from eighteen nineteen hundreds early nineteen hundreds, and turned them into you know for lack of a better term Rockefeller medicine, which is all about drugs and surgery as we know. And then they've you know created the AMA and all these systems of controls, and then you work with the research um, universities, and you get these doctors into these ridiculous you know, eight years of med school and internship and residency and and the stress put on them is unbelievable. I mean, who wants to have a resident operate on them who's been up for 36 hours? <laughs> That's never made sense to me. But it's part of, you know, the gauntlet that these doctors have to run to to prove that, that they're the right uh, personality type. Um, this became clear to me. I went to naturopath, um med school for one one semester and then I found out um, I was pregnant after all these years of trying so I ended up leaving but it was very educational because what I realized while I was doing my pre-med is organic chemistry is a weeder class 
it weeds out the people who want to think, and it only lets through the people who will put their head down and memorize, because that's the only way to get through that class. It was brutal. But this is all the design of it, right? So, you know, you get the doctors in, you get the nurses in, they're licensed, they're tightly controlled, insurance controls them, um, the hospitals control them, their massive student loan debt controls them. So then along comes COVID, and what happens? Well, the hospital policymaker says, you know, only one or two people need to be kind of in on the game because the system of control kind of keeps everybody else in line. So the policymaker says, okay, you know, Medicare is reimbursing $13,000 for a COVID diagnosis. So if they come in looking like pneumonia, we're calling them COVID, and we're getting, you know, basically three times the reimbursement. And then- well, and let me let me say something about that really quick, right? So I have a friend who works in an ICU at a hospital, or did at, at the time that, that we were going through one of our peaks here in Texas. And she said, defending this, you know, Yes, when someone comes in and we see it and we know it's COVID, we will test them four or five times until we get a positive because we know what we're looking at because we've been doing it long enough to know what we're seeing. And I didn't even respond. But that admission was just, it was positively ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It was positively ridiculous. And that that's an example of a person that's part of the system you're describing that doesn't even really get what they're doing because they're so programmed and conditioned. Exactly. You know, and then, so then let's say they are one of the really sick people. You know, like the New York, there was the New York doctor who ran the COVID emergency room in the hot spot of New York City. And he said the people coming in, their lungs were clear. They, they appeared to be suffering from hypoxia. Hmm. You know, the lack of oxygen in the blood. They needed oxygen. Hospital policy at that time was not to give oxygen for fear of making the virus spread faster through the air, right? So these people, they had to wait until they fell over from lack of oxygen. Then they ventilated them, and 9 of 10 of them died because they already know when you ventilate them, you're going to die. But you put them on a vent, and your reimbursement goes to 39,000. You know, and the doctors are like, this is wrong. I mean, I'm sure some of your your people have seen that the nurses and the doctors crying on YouTube were killing people. This is this is where you know we need to start getting some of our information if if you're not already um, because these are the people living it who can see through it but it's a very carefully designed system of control and if you speak out so like that ER doctor who spoke out well he lost his job at the hospital of course and they took his videos down and and they you know they said this yeah. guy's spewing dangerous misinformation here's a guy in the ICU treating pe- patients with a medical degree saying, this is what I'm seeing, and I think we need... And he didn't even say, we need to stop doing this immediately. He's like, I think we need to look at this. And when you see somebody like that hammered for what they're saying, if you don't see that something's not right, you're a direct product of the problem we're talking about today. Exactly. You know, and it's all controlled. And so people, you know, they get used to their... Well, they've got their student loans, and then they've got their mortgage, and then... You know, they've got their pension that they need to count on. And so they they allow themselves to be controlled by the system for the comforts that it offers them. So I realized early on that the corporate world was, I always called it evil. I mean, I'm 21 years old. I've got my first corporate full-time job. And I'm like, 
this is evil. <laughs> you know, I ended up staying in the corporate world for 20 years um, before I finally felt like I had enough experience to go out as an independent contractor, which was night and day, so much better. But even that still depends on the corporate world, you know, to engage your services, even though it's one layer removed. But ideally, you know, if we're looking at solutions, especially with the massive amount of control that's that's trying to come our way, is people, we need to really get into entrepreneurship, um, you know, starting at least on a small level until we see what kind of systems are going to be available to us. Um, because everything is just shifting. And it I know it seems scary and awful, but really we're, we have the opportunity to build our own new systems that work. And that's, to me, what gives me a lot of hope and inspiration. Yeah, I agree. And I I, I am hopeful, but I also kind of want to dig more into the, the bad before we go into some of the good and the solutions. Because I think people really need to get a full understanding of even if they broke it, what's actually happening to the people they care about. So mm-hmm. let's just talk about a little bit of how all these control systems, because COVID's just the most in-our-face version of it right now, how inherently damaging this is to the human being itself. Right. So, you know, I keep going back to the design. Because when you see the design of the systems, they have built into them so much control, psychological manipulation, punishment and reward, structures that appear unable to be changed, right? Like it, you talk about it's going to take an act of Congress to do that, and we know that that's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. You can see, you know, that's how we all get captured by the system. Um, so just understanding the structure of these systems is really powerful um, and and learning how you can step away from them. So the system's... Like I said, there are a set of business rules and workflows and data flows and policies, hierarchical structures designed to produce a goal. So, for example, the education system, the stated goal is to educate our children to function successfully in society. Now, I actually, in a sick sort of way of looking at this, they're accomplishing that goal. (laughs) But what's sick about it is the society that they're educating the children for is the dystopian one that we're headed towards, right? So they actually are kind of meeting their goals. Oh, they're meeting the the education system works perfectly. It works as designed. Yeah, but we're looking at it as, no, we want a society that that serves us all, you know, and that for for a society that serves us all for our highest good and it's not meeting those goals. So it's really insidious to understand what's the goal that's, that's being worked on here. And, you know, the problem is people, it's difficult for people who aren't psychopathic to understand the psychopathic Mm. mindset and that they can actually actively put their energy toward these evil ends. But when you look at the evidence, just straight up look at the evidence, look at the unintended consequences, look at what's happening and see it. It's undeniable. This is what's happening, and there are solutions. So, you know, when you first start going down the rabbit hole, it's like, oh, we're lost. Well, no, we're not lost. Seeing it's the first step, and then it's easy from there to to figure out how to shift. It's a very salient point, 
that the reason the average person is so susceptible to these systems of control is that not only would they never do it to anybody, but they kind of believe that no one else would either, or only a very small number of people. And I, I think another thing that people have a hard time understanding is a very small number of 330 million is a lot of people. And those people, as psychopaths, are like oil on a body of water. They rise to the top of systems and control because they want control. It's not that they're the best people for the job. It's not that they're the most intelligent. It's not that they're the most hardworking. It's, I'll put it to you this way, she said. Do you want to be in politics? Do you want to be a governor or a congressman or, uh, or a president? Do you want to do that? You know, I've thought this through a lot, yeah. and I would love to be in charge of things. However, <laughs> I wouldn't be allowed to do it the way I wanted to do it, so no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you don't want to do it to control. You would want it to do it to remove control, which is why it wouldn't work. I have a good friend of mine, when I asked him that, he said, no, I don't want to be president, but if you let me be king for a while, <laughs> I would do that, right, because then I could get some stuff done. And, you know, I think there, there, there is something to that. But in our system, the people that gravitate towards this are the people that want to control others. And, and since most people don't want to control others, they don't really understand how, how bad these people can be and how bad they can behave. It doesn't make sense to them. It's like the person that when you say, listen, um, there's a lot of crime in the neighborhood. Maybe you need to get a gun and you, you know, have the woman that says, well, who would ever come here and hurt me? Mm -hmm. Um, everybody that would hurt anybody that thinks they can get away with it, that knows where you are and thinks you have what they want. It's a pretty long list, but they can't see it. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. But it, not, not wanting to control other people is, you know, it's how we should all be. Um, but it, it, we need to understand that there are people that want to control every inch. And if you start looking at like some of what, um, Allison McDowell, I think is her name, what she's talking about with the social impact bonds, that gets extremely dystopian because they're trying to control like literally every molecule and every action and, and everything. It, it, it just overwhelms me. Um, what what some of the information coming out is, and I haven't dug that deeply into it. So, you know, it's also hard to know what's what's true and what's just psychological operations to mm -hmm. scare us. Yeah. So, you know, what I come back to, regardless of what's out there, is the answer is always the same. Yeah, I tell you, I've gotten to the point where I'm almost paranoid with it. But I'm still rational, so it's not actually paranoia. And I don't know if it's paranoia if, if you're right. Um, but I look at it and I go, it's so, it's been so perfectly done up till now that I don't believe anything that's done is done in a vacuum or without an understanding of the eventual result. So when I look at things right now, like the Democrats saying, oh, it was always the Republicans that wanted to defund the police, right? And, oh, we're giving $300 billion toward, you know, refunding the police across the country. I'm like, well, was a giant, massive police force and people clamoring for more policing what you always wanted anyway? Mm-hmm. Right? Wasn't that, isn't that, like, you did all this, you destroyed all this property, you encouraged all these riots, you did all, but what you actually wanted was more police. Even the people that say, now sure, there's 
some of the useful idiots that really believe what they're saying, the AOCs of the world and whatever. But most people know better than this. And if you are a politician and you're a member of the protected class, the last thing you want is a reduction in law enforcement because they're the people that protect you. So to me, I've looked at this the whole way and go, okay, here's the other side of the trap, right? This is like, this is the cheese, and bam, you're looking at basically, you know, an advance of of, of basically techno-fascism enforced by a law enforcement class. And that that's what they wanted in the first place. And I'm not saying I'm right about that. I'm saying that, like, that seems more likely than they really thought it was a good idea to defund the NYPD. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the whole thing is just manipulation on both ends of the game. So if it's coming out of politics, I don't trust it. I mean, I know that Ron DeSantis in Florida is looking like he's working for the people, and maybe he truly is, you know, and Christy Nome in South Dakota, maybe they are honorable people, but I still see what they're doing is fitting into the, the game. Oh, yes. Because the, the legal stuff that was put in place in Florida that everybody raved about, you know, no vaccine mandates and vax passports and whatever the details were. There's there's a podcaster called Legal Man on the Quash, and he breaks this all down. He's been a lawyer for 35 years. So he sees the system for all, all that it is. And he breaks it down and points out all the new systems of control that are being introduced by this law, right, that we don't see because we're not lawyers. Mm. You know, he can take a 20-minute podcast and break down the legal system into undeniably obvious terms that none of us would see because we're not lawyers and we don't understand the system. But now I do. Now I understand it much better. So, you know, that's some really good information. I recently did some reading on DeSantis, and I'm like, okay, so he graduated from Yale and went to Harvard Law. Mm -hmm. And then he was in the Navy – he did serve, I think it was SEAL Team 2. He wasn't a SEAL. He just was like, he was actually a lawyer. Um, but he ended up legally as a legal advisor uh, on, on SEAL Team 2 with some issues with international law and got out of the Navy in either 2010 or 2012. Does one term as a congressman and ends up governor of Florida. I'm just saying... You don't do that unless somebody wants you in that type of position of power. It it just is not the type of thing that would typically happen, that a person would go from, you know, from basically being a lawyer out of the military to the governor of one of the most influential states in the union in about eight years. It just, it, it just isn't. It's not normal. And then when you look at that pedigree, and he has some pretty negative things to say about people at Harvard and Yale, but we are all players and we all play our parts, right? In, in the words of the immortal Shakespeare, right? Like something there doesn't quite jive with me. Yeah, I agree. You know, I look at something like how come Ron Paul couldn't get anywhere yet we could hire Trump four years later? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like he wasn't allowed. He was yeah. not allowed to get anywhere. That's yeah. the bottom line. I'm sure, had he been allowed, he would have been elected. I don't know if he would have been elected. I don't, I don't know if I'll go that far. He would have had a really good chance. He would not have been, you know, at the bottom of every poll. He, you know, he there would have, there's a very good chance that he would have been the Republican nominee, and a very good chance he would have won the election. And 
it looks like there was never any chance. That's that's what they've created this illusion that there was mm-hmm. never any chance, and and I don't I don't buy that. I you know, and I I don't buy a lot of things. I'm not a huge fan of Trump, but I'm also like. When you tell me Biden got more votes than any other candidate for president in the history of the United States, and he can't get a thousand people to watch a live stream on YouTube, I right. I kind of like go wait a minute these, and, and, and I you know I'm not a Q-tard where I think you know Trump's going to be reinstated. I guess it's August sixth now or whatever the hell it is. Like this is this is fantasy nonsensical thinking, but I. Just I'm just going. This is a round peg, and it doesn't go in a square hole here. And when you say that, people immediately go, "Well, you're crazy." Mm-hmm. And they're the person in Idiocracy. If you've ever seen the movie Idiocracy, that's like, tr- yeah. have you ever seen it? And the dude's like yeah. trying to shove the round peg in the square hole, and he's like hiding it, like you hide your work so nobody cheats and watches what he's doing. Like I'm going, that's you, man. I I'm not the crazy one here. I'm not even saying I'm right. I'm saying it makes sense to ask that question, and it doesn't make sense for the person to ask that question to immediately be attacked. If, if you're right, you should be able, in all these situations, that's another thing I see with these systems of control, is it is unacceptable to question the narrative. And the person, not the argument, must immediately be attacked. I mean, I have people emailing me frequently telling me the earth is flat. Right? And, and, and my response to them is, you're an idiot. But I'm not going to silence them if I really felt what they were saying was starting to be accepted by the, you know, the average person and it was dangerous for the average person to accept that information, if I really thought it was a threat and I had one of these platforms, I would put out information that logically counters this nonsensical argument. I wouldn't be like, oh, we must silence them. Because that tells me you're, a, you're not concerned that people believe them, you're concerned that they're right, and you're concerned that if you meet them near the top of the hierarchy of argument, you will fail. Yep. That's just, I mean, you know, I got into all this from the vaccine discussions. Because hmm. I'm in California, and we've, you know, got some of the early, more draconian laws put into place. And I saw the system firsthand. They flat out ignored us. You know, we had thousands and thousands of people there. The CHP said they had never seen so many people turn out for anything, right? Yeah. And what does the legislature do? They suspend the rules of law. (laughs) They go hide in the basement, and they pass it after telling us, we don't want to hear about your injured children. I mean, it's like, it's so in your face, you just realize the system is set up not for you. Because... If you know four thousand parents are, are are storming the not storming the Capitol because yeah, um, that could really be taken wrong now. Thanks guys, <laughs> thanks guys, good job. We filled up the hallways. I'll say I that. got you. You could hardly walk through there. Okay. I mean, how do you ignore that and say that this is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people? It isn't. It isn't. You know, it's a government of the agenda. It's a government of the aristocracy for the aristocracy in name of the aristocracy and in the name of corporatism. That's, that's what it is. How do, how do feedback loops? I mean, having been in the professional world you are in, you, you have to understand feedback loops fairly well. How do feedback loops play into all of this? Well, feedback loops give you the information that, that your design is either doing what it's supposed to do or not. 
right? So it's like, um, well, like with the, the COVID vaccine. So they do their testing and then they put it out to the public and they what they call is post-marketing surveillance, which I don't think we're quite here yet because it's not officially approved, but it's generally the same thing is where they put it out to more people and then they start analyzing the results. So the feedback that they're getting is that a lot of people are dying, getting really sick, having blood clots. So the feedback is working, right? They're getting the information. They're just not doing anything with it. Um, typically in a design, when you're getting feedback that's, that's counter to what your actual goal is, you know to get in there and make adjustments so until that feedback stops. Um, does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. Okay. Yeah, feedback is hugely important. I mean, if you look at a permaculture system, everything feeds into the next thing, right? And when something gets out of whack, like you've got too many weeds in one spot or algae in your tank, that's a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. Something's and you not know, right here. Out of balance. And so you adjust. And then if you adjust properly, it goes back into balance. So nature is all about feedback loops. Um, and, you know, man-made systems have feedback loops. Sometimes we listen to them, sometimes we don't. Yeah. And if we don't, it's because, oh, but it is behaving properly. <laughs> That's the problem. Yeah, I think there's, there, that is something that I think is true for a lot of people, that they, they look at something that's a feedback, and they think it's an indicator that that the system's wrong versus the system is doing exactly what the conditions of it would indicate would happen right now. And you not liking the result does not mean the system's not doing what it's supposed to do, and if you have any control that if you don't like the result, you need to make a change. It's not that there's algae in a fish tank because Jupiter and Saturn aligned in some weird way and there's nothing you can do about it. There's too much nutrient in the tank, right? And so you need to you need to correct the imbalance in the system. It's telling you, it actually is showing you the problem, even though it itself is not the problem, if that makes sense. Yeah. But if your goal, personally, was to create algae in the fish tank, yeah. then you've met your goal. Then I would throw lots of nitrogen. I would throw lots of nitrogen in there, and I wouldn't clean it. Right. So the (laughs) next person comes along is like, your fish tank's out of balance. You need to fix this. And you're like, no, everything's fine. I wanted algae. (laughs) Your goal and what he thought your goal was are two different things. Yeah, yeah. You know? So that that goes back to what I said. If, If you hear the terms of collateral damage or unintended consequences, but they're allowed to continue... See, that's the key. Yeah. When they're allowed to continue causing their harm, that's when you need to recognize that, that this maybe is the goal. And when you see things like, you know, government incompetence, I know that you've said government's hugely incompetent, and I agree with you. I also think it's by design because that's a great <laughs> scapegoat. Yeah, yeah. You know, you build in the incompetence. You build in the bureaucracy. You build in the perceived lack of funding so that they can't meet all the goals that they stated. But we all know, you know, Catherine Austin Fitz and the $21 trillion that's gone missing from HUD and, um, you know, the I can't remember how many trillions were announced missing from the Pentagon the day before 9-11. I mean, there's tons of money out there for yeah. all these things, you know, 
black night, black ops money, whatever you want to call it. So when, when these agencies claim they don't have funding to solve basic problems, it's by design. I agree with that. The front line, the accountants are probably like, oh man, we don't have the money. I believe they're honest. I believe they're legitimate. You only need a handful of people in key positions to pull this off. Well, so take a look at it from the, from the people that pull the levers, right? You can have a massive bloated bureaucracy of a government that's massively incompetent, but it still has certain things that it's going to do. And then you know if I start, it's like Plinko, but I know which way the thing's going to fall. That if I start this thing here at the top and I push it in a certain direction, or I can just like Plinko that goes either direction, I can start it from the bottom, create a riot over here. And I know where I'm creating the riot and where that relates in this massive, almost like a life form that is the federal bureaucracy, and then all of the state, city, county bureaucracies connected to it, that this is the result I'm going to get. Okay. Right? It doesn't need to be competent for me to know what the results will be, and more importantly, to know how people will, re- will act in response to it, and then to know what to put in my other little machine, which is the media, to get that re- to, to fine-tune the response the way that I want it. They knew that not everybody was going to bow down to this, this mass masking and mass vaccination and mass lockdown. They knew that. But they knew also that they could get the vast, or not even the vast, a majority to do so. And if they had that, then they would have the monkeys policing the monkeys. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's part of the psychological operations, the divide and conquer you know, the whole thing about the riots is it never in a million years occurred to me that mayors could order police to just stand back and watch. No. But no. that's built into the design. And now we've seen it. So now we know there's no help from that area. You know, I've learned so much about the role of police in the last year and a half. And... It's not in our interest, unfortunately. Well, think about this from from that whole aspect, like of standing down and whatever. The couple in Missouri that had the gate around their community knocked down, mobs pour into their gated community on the border of their property, threatening to destroy their home, who came out with loaded firearms and just said, don't do it, never shot anybody, never shot at anybody. Uh, weren't out there yelling things like, I'm going to kill you, MF, or anything like that. It was just like, hey, this place is armed, we will defend it. If you had said to somebody in Missouri a year earlier, if this happens, they'll prosecute the homeowners, what do you think they'd have told you? You're nuts. You are out of your flipping mind. <laughs> they would be like, you mean an actual mob, not like one guy walking down the road asking if he can mow lawns. No, no, a mob that tore down the fence, that had smashed shit all over the city already, that were threatening to destroy their home. If they point guns at them, they will arrest the homeowners for doing it. And if somebody would say, in, in L.A.? No, no, Missouri. Missouri. No, no, they would have never believed you. We just watched it happen, and we watched a lawyer plead guilty to a lesser charge just to end it. A lawyer, right? Not me, who has, like, oh, shit, what do I do? Like, a lawyer go, oh, it's just easier to do this. It's insane. The guy is a, it's not a criminal record that it's a felony, right? So it won't prevent him, because he, like, he, good for him. He went out and bought another gun, like, an hour later. Um, because they took his gun, too, right? But, like, this is insane. 
No one in Missouri would have ever believed that a year ago. Or I should say two years ago now, because it actually happened a year ago. Right. Yeah, that that goes into the whole legal system. So, you know, one thing that's been brought to my attention recently from this Quash guy is these prosecutors, they pile on charge after charge after charge to overwhelm you so that you'll plead out, you know, to a lesser thing so that they win dinged, and you don't have to go through the court system for a jury trial. Well, the problem is there's no consequence for the prosecutor to pile on false charges. There's None. no retail, no way to, to make them stop doing that. That's built into the system. They have free reign. Yeah, let's let's look at that. Let's say that I take no risk. I hate you. I just don't like you, Suzanne. I just hate you, and I'm a prosecutor, right? And so I go after you in a witch hunt and spend millions and millions of dollars. I don't know where that happened recently, but um, I actually don't have anything. But I want to make your life miserable, so I bring thirty very serious charges against you and back channel my. You know, one of my underlings goes to your attorney and says that Suzanne will just plead to these two relatively small misdemeanors that won't destroy her life. We'll just we'll just let her cop plead. And you say, you know what? No, you double bird back and you say, go ahead, try to prosecute me. And they fail. Zero happens to that prosecutor or their officer, anybody involved in the chain that made the decision to do that. And if you conclusive, if you had them on tape saying, yeah, we know they didn't do this, but we're doing it anyway, literally nothing would happen to them anyway. They take no risk. You get all the risk. You get all the punishment. They get, they have no risk. And mm. they have all the resources. This is designed into the system. You know, we're, we have this constitution, but as has been pointed out, look at where we are. And the Constitution has allowed it to happen. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Spooner said if the Constitution is either incapable of preventing what has happened from happening or it's the, it it, it allows it, right? Mm -hmm. So it either, it either allows for it or it, it, it didn't stop it. And either way, it's not fit to exist. And I know people get really triggered when you say that, but the logic of that argument is fundamentally unflawed. I mean, you know, it's look at the evidence right in front of us. It's undeniable. And and people don't want to see it for what it is. It is a complete and utter failure of the systems to serve us. Why do people allow this? Because most of this is, I know people say it's totalitarianism and whatever, but in reality, when you look at it, it is by the permission of the people. And I, I don't mean that they elect people to do it with the intent of having them do it. I mean that there's a lot of systems of control that they're if if twenty percent of the people said, nope, we're not doing that, they would have no control, yet in mass most people do comply to things that they know are wrong. Yeah. So I mean I have quite a few things, you know, as to why people do it. You know, people think they have no alternative. I have to keep my job, right? Pay the mortgage, feed the kids. I don't want to go to prison, right? So I'm not going to fight back against this prosecutor because I don't want to go to prison. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to tell the IRS that, you know, you're you're stealing from me under under threat of force because I'll go to prison. You know, 
they want to, they'll, they'll take the job or whatever because they have to go to work. They're afraid of not doing whatever it is that they're supposed to do because, you know, my friends will think I'm weird and they'll dump me. My social circle will leave me behind. I'll be alone. My family's pressuring me. I mean, these are all the very common things that, that these control structures, because psychology is such a foundational system of control, they understand how to terrify people. And the thought of being alone is terrifying. And so they, they build everything so that if you don't go along with the pack, you're going to be alone. And we know if that you're the lone animal away from the pack, you're the first one that gets preyed on. So it's, it's deeply psychological. But when you can understand the psychology behind it, you can start seeing right through it um, you know, like I felt alone most of my adult life. I had friends and I had family, but nobody really understood where I was coming from because I saw this, you know, early on that there was things really wrong, even though I didn't understand why. But now as things have played out, I am building myself a local community that's that's really amazing because the people that are starting to see it, it's like, okay, yeah, we need to come together. We need to build our our mutual aid group, you know, and start supporting each other. So, you know, and some of these people, like all of my friends have left me. I need to find new friends <laughs> who understand. It's really powerful, the psychology. I, you know, but it's hard to accept. No, I I also think it is that... People do conform to the group. There's an experiment, I can't remember what it's called, but they basically take like four people and put them in a room. And they show them a, a line, and then there's four other lines on the other side of the screen. And one of the lines is the same length as the first line. And only one person in the group thinks the test is real. The rest are actors, and they've been all told to pick the wrong line and once somebody picks the wrong line, everybody outside of the group of actors, the other two, pick the wrong line. And you watch it, and the person who is the, the experimental person, the, the first time, you know, nails it right. This is not, this is not that hard to do. It's not an optical illusion. It's, it's pretty evident that line two is the same as the, the baseline. And so he'll say two, and then everybody else is like three. And he looks at them like they're nuts, and he's like, it's two. He, he almost is, um, angry, right? Mm -hmm. And then the second time, he'll get the right answer, but he starts to question himself. And it's usually the third or fourth round. He just starts saying whatever everybody else says. Yeah. And, and that's hardwired because when we were a primitive being, and we were going around where, like, if you didn't stick together and didn't do the right things, like the lion was going to eat you or you were going to starve to death, we kind of evolved in this collectivism to not stray from the group. And if you look at animals like, you know, you mentioned a fish tank earlier. If you have a sick fish in a tank, the other fish will attack it. Like it doesn't fit in anymore. Like it's, it, it needs to go. It's wrong. It's bad. If you look at the way dogs act, like the reason they get mad at post office workers or UPS, they wear uniforms. They look different than every other human that dog sees. So there's something wrong about it. So we have this hardwired into us. So if we think we're the minority, we'll gravitate to what we think 
is the majority. So what's the first thing you do when you're trying to control people during a pandemic? You lock them down and you separate them. Mm-hmm. And they don't go to the bar room anymore. They don't go to the local club. They don't go to the PTA meeting. They don't go to church. Whatever it is where they have cohorts that are mostly like them, you separate them. And then all they see is what the algorithm on social media puts in front of you and what the supposed doctor on the news puts in front of you. And you believe, even when you've made a more intelligent decision, I must be the minority here, and I don't want to upset us. My own son said to me about masks one time, I wear it so other people are comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, you really need to think about the words your grandfather spoke before he passed away. Because my, my father-in-law you know, grew up as a teenager and into his, his early teens and 20s in the middle of the Nazi occupation. And I mean, that I, I'm kind of glad he didn't live to see it because he would have been out beating the shit out of people, honestly. Like my grandfather would have went, my grandfather would have went psychotic in the middle of this. Like it just couldn't have happened in 1985. This, I, I don't believe we were at a point where the average person would let it. But today we're there, and I think mainly we have people doing this go-along and get-along, but they're not even in the minority. They've just been so expertly lied to, they believe themselves to be the minority. Right. Yeah, the social media is so insidious. Mm. I stopped using it because I, I could see what was going on. I actually would have posts. I would post a big spiritual um like three paragraphs on the next door app. Yeah. And it got to the point it wouldn't even post before it was deleted. So like the AI bots yeah. captured it before it could even be posted. Huh. I mean, this happened multiple times. It's, the first time it happened, I thought, oh, yeah, my computer glitched, right? Yeah. The, the third, fourth, and fifth time, it's like, oh, no, <laughs> it's not a computer glitch. And, you know, the, it's designed to make you feel bad. Yeah, I agree. Are designed to make you feel bad and make people get mad at each other, and it, you know, it's like having a deep conversation across text. It just is not the right medium for it. Well, and I also think this is like this is why I'm enjoying some of the newer platforms that don't do this crap, like Float, for instance, because one of the complaints people have that well, everybody there is like liberty minded, and you know, they all get along, and they're, I'm like so. Like if I went if I went to a club like I joined a rod and gun club or something like we used to have in Pennsylvania and everybody there was a dick, I'd quit. Right? Like I'm not coming here. I'd find a place for like where do we gather? We gather where people are of like mind. This is totally normal. And we've actually been convinced by the the, 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 the giant brands that that's a bad thing. That we would join with people who have common ideals. No, it's much better to join with people that all hate each other. Like, so you go on Facebook, you, you you friend up all your friends in real life, and then you see content for people you have no idea who they are. It's right. and it, To me, it's toxic, and it's, it's why I'm glad I'm done with the old world of it. You know, this is another factor of the PSYOP, is the whole diversity and inclusivity yeah. business. Yeah. I don't want to live next door to people who party all night. I go to no. bed at like 9.30. You know, in college, I nearly had a roommate who stayed up until 5 a.m. partying, and I'm the one who got up at 5 a.m. to go row crew. That was not going to be a good fit. No. You know, it didn't matter who she was. It wasn't going to be a good fit, lifestyle-wise. And so, you know, what the the system has tried to do is shove us all together and say we all need to be able to get along despite our differences in lifestyles and values, and that's just not true. That is a recipe for chaos. And conflict. No, I you can just, see it playing out. 
And see, it's close to the truth, but it's a lie, so it's really dangerous. Like, so what we all need to be able to do is give each other the space and the respect and the tolerance to all live the way that we choose as long as we're not hurting anybody else. But it doesn't mean we all need to be together. And if you want to look at the place that they, they do this so perfectly, it's the public education system. Like, mm-hmm. if you have two kids that literally hate each other, the solution is simple. Separate them. That's the solution. Whether one's a bully or they're both party to it or they just don't. Like, and, and what do we do as adults? If you and I did work in the same office and we just didn't like each other, unless I'm your direct supervisor or you're mine, what do we do? We just, we just ignore each other. We, 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 and we have to have the skill set that like when we're in a meeting together and we are working for a common goal, we have to get along in that environment. And then I go back to my desk and you go back to yours and we go on about our business. That's the real world. Mm-hmm. And that's what we say we're preparing children for in school. And then we do the exact opposite. You have to get along with this person. You have, you tell the kid that's being bullied to make friends with this bully. Well, that's mm-hmm. just not going to happen. Like the person that says it, I'm like, well, You know, I don't smoke a lot of pot, but whenever you're smoking, it must be really good. And can I get some of that? Because either you're stupid or you're high. And if you're high, I kind of want to experience what level of high that is that makes you think this is a valid solution. Or you tell the kid that's like 100 pounds underweight to learn martial arts or stuff. He's still going to get his ass kicked, right? Like, what do we do? And if if we didn't like each other in work – and your name was Sam instead of Suzanne, because I'd never punch a, a woman in the face. But let's say your name was Sam, and you know, you're know you a dude, and I didn't like you. And so since I didn't like you, I walked over to you, and I punched you in the face. I'm getting arrested. I'm not getting detention. I'm getting arrested because I assaulted you. Right? You're not, they're not going to say, like, you guys need to shake hands and be friends. But we put kids into that situation in school. And then you wonder, like earlier we were talking about why people comply. Well, 13 years of that shit. Or another four if you go to college of that mindset. And I know I'm going to piss some people off here, but this is why I think so many people who are teachers don't live in the real world. They never left that system. They like, they go K-12, then they go to college, and then they go teach in grade school. And then they're 40 and they've never actually had a job outside of the school, the classroom. And, and right. when you talk to them, you're like, I, even if they're a smart person, I have teachers I have a lot of respect for, but there's time. It's not all the time, to be clear. There, but there's times when I'm talking to them, I'm like, am I talking to a 16-year-old? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Where you just feel like, like, wow, we're just in a different place in our understanding of the fundamental reality of how human beings interact. And they're the number one group of people that I've seen, even when they're not being forced to, say they're not going to get vaccinated for this COVID crap and then go do it. Because I think they're so conditioned that the conditioning, even when they're saying, I'm not going to do it, they know they're lying. They're lying to themselves, and they're going to go do it because they can't not do it. It's that moth to the flame type thing of compliance. Yeah. You know, and here's the thing parents need to really look at, because I listen to the kids. I have two teenage boys, and I've listened to them and their friends talk from the time they were in kindergarten. And I hear the stories. From school, and the stories are very consistent. And these, you know, these are good kids. I've never seen anybody lying, but their stories are all very consistent. And I can see it too because I worked in the classroom. And so I'm always like trying to explain to the parents what's going on in school, and the parents are like, "Oh yeah, school sucks, but you know we made it through, so they can too." And I'm like, but 
But why do you want that for your kid? You know it didn't serve you. You know you just got through it instead of thriving in it. Why do you want that for your children? And add to that the fact that it's, you know, infinitely worse now than it was when we were in school, you know, back in the whenever, 70s, 80s, 90s. It's not even the same. So it's like, wake up. I just want to slap some parents across the head. It's like, wake up. Why do you want this for your child? It, it doesn't serve them. Because like, these kids, my kids' friends, some of them have got so much passion and drive and they are being stifled with school, absolutely stifled. That's like, just, you know, I've been trying to start up my own homeschool co-op here for years and I just can't get anybody willing to take the leap, which is really interesting, but... You know, it is what it is. So well, and I think we we do need more of that. But I've seen so many claims that there's this teacher in Tennessee, and she's and, and it's like no, it's and I think that's the other side. Like we on the other side of this, we have to stop believing in fallacy and fantasy. Mm-hmm. Like our solutions are real, but let's not pretend they're in existence when they're not. Because a homeschool co-op should be the most natural thing for humans to do. Right. That there is, right. it should be easy. Project based. Right, it should be well. It should be easy to get done because what you hear parents say is, "Well, I would love to." Right, this is like almost like the reversal we were talking about with government. They claim they're trying to do this, but then you look at the results and go, "Well, no, you're not." So I would love to, but I can't make it work. We're a two-income family, whatever. Okay, well, I would imagine that any family, if they try, if it if it mattered to them, could figure out how one parent one day a week could take off and oversee their children and the children of four other families. I don't care what you do, there is a way, and it's not the public education system. So you could use freaking Saturday, right? You could have Saturday, yeah. and if you're not having a religious objection to this, you could use Sunday, right? So that's two of the five days a week if you want to do five, and you don't, you know what? You know what? I I have two grandchildren in in school right now. Homeschool at home. They don't need five days a week to get five days a week work done. They don't even need the whole day. My grandson is doing about a five day a week schedule, but he's done in about two hours. Right? Yeah. So if you really wanted to do this, I don't see how five families could try sincerely and fail to do it. Right? Well, I see how five families could pretend they want to. Mm-hmm. But I do not see how if you got the heads of five households together and say, we're all going to sit down, we're all going to map this out, we're all going to figure out what we can and can't commit to honestly, and we're going to do everything we can so that our family's children can get through K-12 education without relying on the state, and then say, we, we just, it's not doable. But again, I'm back to intentional separation of individuals, like, when I grew up, I could literally walk the, the block that I lived on when I lived in more of a town area or when I moved to Pennsylvania, the street that my grandparents lived on. And I could just walk up to anybody's doorstep and knock on the door. And they're like, oh, hey, how are you doing? What do you need? Like, not what is some kid doing here? Like, do your grandparents need something? No, I was just coming to pet your dog. Oh, he's out back. Like, that was normal. And I don't know that that doesn't exist in America anymore, but it doesn't exist almost everywhere as it did back in, like like I said, you know, 70s and 80s when I was growing up. 
Like, we had that kind of closeness. So I think if we had the school system pulling the shit that it's pulling right now back then, it would have been very natural. All the parents talked to each other all the time. Uh, how old are you? I, I know I'm not supposed to ask a woman that, but, like, you know, <laughs> what was the heyday of your childhood, 80s, 90s, 60s, 70s, what? I, I, I'm 57. So okay, so you're a little older than 70s, me. 70s and 80s, yeah. So, yeah, if you did some shit and somebody else's parents saw it, right, the parent hotline was going to go. And when you walked in the door, the first thing you were going to hear is, Tammy's mom just called. Right? That was, like, and you knew that, right? You knew, like, I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> so you didn't get in trouble. Like, but that, it's not about the kids at that point. It's about the parents having a coalition. Right? There's no way that we'd have a debate about whether or not critical race theory was being taught in our schools in 1980. It wouldn't even have been like, uh, no, we're not doing that. Okay, well, my kid's not coming. You are? Okay, my kids aren't coming to school. You're going to do what? No. No, you're not sending a truant officer to my house. I, I really mm -hmm. suggest that you don't do that. By the way, I've just talked to all the other parents in his class, and so you're going to be really busy because none of them are coming. And there have been like one kid there from Mrs. Compliance that would have been sitting there by himself. And then they would have had no, no choice, right? Because the kids don't go, the school doesn't get the money. We have all the power. We fail to use it. And it's, it is sad to me, you know, And can you maybe talk, we need to move along here, I need to get toward wrapping up, and I've got a lot of stuff on your list here, but how about how the interconnections work in these systems of control? Yeah, so, you know, you look at things like, like we spray Roundup on our food, it creates gut distress and mm. all sorts of bad issues. When your gut doesn't work properly, your neurotransmitters don't get built and your brain chemistry is off. So we've got an epidemic of, um, you know, depression, anxiety, panic, bipolar, schizophrenia. There's a variety of, you know, things that cause this, uh, but definitely gut dysfunction is big on the list along with, you know, the toxins in the vaccines, the water, the air, our entire environment, everything is poisoned. Um, But these things all, all work together, right? So the food industry is producing really poor quality poisoned food for us because, you know, the crops are sprayed with Roundup. And then the medical industry gets in there and, and they're prescribing medications for it without even knowing to prescribe <laughs> real food because they only get four hours of nutrition school in the Rockefeller-controlled med schools. And then they... Well, and then they also control the registered dietitians so that the registered dietitians are only looking at the breakdown of, you know, vitamins and minerals and not the actual quality of the food either. Um, and then, you you know, you go to alternate practitioners and then they get harassed for practicing medicine without a license and then the judicial system gets involved and starts putting them away. So, I mean, that's just like a high-level... No, it's dead on. Set of tentacles, but um, it's just incredible how these things all interact. And you know, with my background in nutrition, I can see how all of these different things have come together to create this perfect storm of of health crisis. You know, and like I know we all tease the younger generation for being snowflakes, and their behavior is meeting that criteria, 
But if you look deeper and you realize they are literally the most poison generation mm. ever. Agreed. And and it's all about map damaging the brain chemistry. So I know, you know, after I had kids, um, I was very depleted. And I could tell that I had no stress reserves at all. And it's difficult to manage life when you have no stress reserves. You know, and your brain brain chemistry and your, your systems are not working at, at par. And so these, these kids, you know, they need their safe spaces because they have no reserves. And then you throw on top of that, you know, the school system conditioning them that you have no rights, you have no value, you have no privacy, you have no anything. And, and you're just constantly looking over your shoulder like, what's coming at me next? You know, and then you don't have reserves to deal with it. And you don't, you've never been taught any critical thinking. You can't think your way out of a paper bag. It's, it's, it's just criminal is the best way I can describe it. No, it's, I'd say it's the most accurate way it can be described. Mm-hmm. It is criminal that we're doing this, and it, 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 and it is interconnected. So you mentioned things like the the toxins in our food system. Well, then on top of it, even if one were to go out and start eating all organic, if you follow the dietary guidelines and you you eat a grain based diet where you're consuming the equivalent of like two and a half cups of sugar a day. Mm-hmm then you're also going to be sick to the point where we now, we have almost, in some big cities, we have almost as many dialysis clinics as we do, like, your whatever your third-tier fast food joint is for the place. It's not as many as Starbucks and McDonald's, but it's like, you know, you have as many as you do little Caesars pizzas or Subways. You have dialysis clinics. And, and then we act like this is normal. And then the solution to this person has type 2 diabetes, which isn't even a thing, is give them insulin so that they can continue the lifestyle that's killing them for longer mm-hmm. until they die. And then say, but you look how expensive their insulin is. Look how expensive the health insurance is. Right, and they have to keep their job because they have to keep their health insurance because they need all these chronic meds. That's another site part of the control. You know, I stayed at my jobs for 20 years because I was on chronic meds for asthma. And, you know, I finally figured out how to heal myself from the chronic asthma, and that was so liberating. Um, but it all keeps you controlled into these systems. You know, I, I didn't dare go out on my own and risk losing my health insurance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, and, and it, again, we're back to looking at the feedbacks and saying, if you really didn't want all these problems, if you really wanted health care to be more affordable, if you really wanted people to be healthier, you'd cease this action. It's not like this is something that just happened. It's not like there's not a lot of data about this. It's not like this is hard to figure out. It's not like there's not hundreds or thousands or hundreds or thousands or millions of people who have stepped outside of this and demonstrated, hey, look, when you do these things instead, here's your results. It's not like I can't you know, put two pictures of myself up, one from like six years ago and one from today, and go, this is what happens when you go to a meat-based diet. It's not like we don't have this data. It's not like they don't know. It's not like we don't have millions of doctors across the world saying, hey, here's two valid treatments for COVID. We don't need these vaccines. It's not like we don't know. So let me ask, too, what doctor is going to go to the gas station and put cheap unleaded in their Mercedes? None. No, they're going to put premium in. None. Because they know if they don't put premium fuel in their tank – 
their vehicle will cease to work properly. But, you know, then they go to the, the chemo clinic and tell their patients, go ahead and eat donuts, you know, keep up your strength while I'm giving you the chemo and the cancer feeds on sugar. But absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. No. I don't even know what to say. No. You know? No. It, and, and literally sugar is cancer fuel. Like, or you get the, the natural doctor that tells the cancer patient to drink carrot juice. Are you high? Again, I want to know what, like, you, did you write yourself a prescription for whatever made you high? Can I have one, too? Like, you, you, you've said, you know what, you have a fire. What you should do is put it out with kerosene. Mm-hmm. That's what you've just done. And how, how does a, a redneck hippie duck farmer know that and a doctor doesn't? And it's because the system was designed to keep them from even investigating the potential that what the criteria says to do could be wrong. Exactly. And, and then you investigate, you'll be shunned. Well, and I think then they, they create a completely different illusion of what a doctor is. They put out TV shows like House MD, which is a great show. But, like, that doctor on his best day on that show could never exist. The doctor that says, well, I know we're supposed to do this, but in this case it doesn't look right, we should do that instead. Mm-hmm. Right there, your medical license is gone. Exactly. You know, but they create this illusion that, like, when you go to the hospital with a rare disease, there's an entire team of doctors dedicated to figuring out exactly what's wrong with just you. And you got doctors, they walk in the, 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 the patient room backwards and go, yeah, what's wrong? Oh, yeah, yeah, my nurse said that. Okay, here's a prescription device. <laughs> and then people believe that there's a doctor like house. Right? That that actually exists. That like when COVID started, like there were all these doctors all over the world trying to figure this out. And I think for a time there were, but we know what happened to all of them that said anything outside of the narrative of it came from a bat that was eaten in a soup pot in a wet market in Wuhan, and there's nothing we can do except ventilate you and wait for the vaccine and uh, use this rendezvous shit that's $1,000 a vial. Like anybody that said anything other than that, Either lost their license or was silenced. So how do we get the hell out of this? Can we can we live outside the system without like doing what I threatened to do years ago and I never have? And that's like without the bombing become Ted Kaczynski. Like just say screw this shit. I'm going to build a ten by ten cabin in the woods in Montana, grow my own food, shoot deer, and the world can go to hell. Is there some way to coexist but exist outside? So I feel like okay, we're at the fork in the road, right? There's kind of three main paths that I can see. The, the one path is you follow the government, submit to authority, <clears throat> follow the rules, pay taxes, receive benefits, lose all your personal freedom and sovereignty, but they'll give you your universal basic income and a place to live. Yeah. Some people may yeah. want that path. Yeah. It's not for me. Those are the people that will probably be living in the smart cities. You know, then there's the, <clears throat> the, <clears throat> excuse me, the middle path, you're still fighting with the government and the authority, their overreach, their injustice. You know, you're breaking their rules. You're protesting. You're filing lawsuits to get legal justice. But you're exhausting yourself, battling a system that you can't win. Um, that'll lead to poverty, exhaustion, incarceration, and madness, right? So that's where I think a lot of us are right now is that path. And then the third path is you just stop playing the game. Mm. You know, you exit their system, you withdraw your consent. Um, The whole game hinges on your consent. And now 
when there's so few of us understanding this, it feels like we're helpless, but we're not. So I've done a lot of studying of natural law in the last couple of years. I, you know, I'm not an expert in it by any sense, but the minute I found it, it was like, oh, yes, this is the answer. This is what, you know, may, everything makes sense now. So when we live aligned with natural law principles, which are basically do no harm, right? So mm-hmm. under natural law, you don't rape, murder, assault, steal, lie, coerce. Um, there's one. Conflict thing. is expensive. You know, summing yeah. it up. Like, conflict is very, and not just in money, right? Like, in energy and time and blood and life, conflict is bad. Right. <clears throat> so when you're living by natural law, so you're taking care of yourself and your property. Your minor children are actually your property under natural law, your offspring. So when you're taking care of what you need to take care of, you are not causing harm to anybody else and you're aligned with the universe, the universe is going to have your back. So this is how, you know, I see some of these people that feel like they should have been taken out already, but they haven't been. Mm. And it it seems to me that it's because they are living an aligned life. And so the universe has got them. So that takes a big leap of faith. Um, And, you know, I was kind of, I don't know if I was atheist or agnostic, but I, I didn't know what to believe for most of my life until I heard about this natural law a few years ago, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, yes, okay, now I get it. And since I've been following it, you know, things have actually improved, and, and you can see this in people's lives when they live an aligned life. So what we need to recognize is that when we live a life aligned with the rules of nature and live in harmony with nature, we will be more successful. I can't guarantee that, you know, if you do that, you're not going to get caught in a riot. I don't know. Yeah. You know, the, the universe is far too complex. Yeah. But you greatly improve your odds, is what I believe. The, the controllers of the world, they understand this natural law, and so this is why they go to great extents to create all these systems that only work on your consent. Because they know that if they do something to you without your consent, they will get a karmic debt, and they don't want that. They don't want to pay that karmic debt. Everything we do is voluntary. You know, like we pay taxes. We we file. We pay. It's voluntary. I mean, it's definitely under coercion. But if you start studying things like the the I don't know the right term for it. I call it the common law, but that's not even the right term. Mm. It's basically when you understand the law and you start filing affidavits of truth, that's when you start getting to withdraw your consent from their systems and these systems will back off. It, it's interesting. I don't, I haven't done it personally yet. I'm still studying, but it's really powerful. You have to be careful though, because it's a big landmine. You know, the, the whole system is mined. And if you, if you, Move forward without full knowledge, you can get yourself into big trouble. So this is why, you know, there's a lot out there that's that's troubling. People going to jail for, you know, doing things wrong. Um, but I do need to bring it up because it is it is important to know that we have our rights from the Creator, not from the government, not from the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't give us rights. It was there to protect our rights, but as we can see, it's not worked out so well. Our rights come from the Creator, and when we can stand in that and know it, we can build the great 
more beautiful world that our that our hearts know is possible. Thank you to Eisenstein. Um, you know, you bring up there that that like you don't know if you're agnostic or atheist back then, and like now you have some direction. And I think that what you just said is inherently universal with anybody that believes in anything that we would call God, the Creator, the infinite intelligence of the universe, whether it be a evangelical Christian or someone like myself that would call myself more of a, a deist or really more of a pandeist. Um, or whatever you would classify, like that is across the board, that even I think the person who has any spirituality within them that believes in, you know, the scientific consensus on um, uh, evolution, if you believe that natural process created you, that there is no God, I, I even think that's universal to that person, because what we're saying is by your creation, no matter how that happened, by your existence as an individual and being sentient, you have these rights. Mm -hmm. They are inherent to what you are. And I think what happens sometimes is the people that are not religious, that have not been exposed to this thinking, when they hear something like rights endowed by our creator, they, they feel that unless you're, you know, a, you know, Southern Bible thumper or something, that this is inherently flawed as an argument. And I think you just put it perfectly as to why that is just nonsense. Yeah. I think that's our biggest challenge, is helping people to understand that they have rights by just their very existence. So what are you doing right now in your life? What are the choices you're making, the decisions you're making, the actions you're taking to live as far outside of their system as possible? Right. So, health care. I personally don't go to doctors anymore because I found that every time I went or took my children, they came out worse than they went in. Okay. And I see this with all around me too. So I don't go anymore. I'm not on any meds. I managed to get myself off the asthma meds, which was difficult because like with the asthma meds, if you don't take them, you start suffering from severe asthma. Like you literally can't breathe just by virtue of not taking them. Not that I had no triggered an attack or anything yeah so these things are designed to be addictive but i worked with a naturopath and and we got through that so it's been hugely liberating to be off the pharmaceuticals because this is a big thing if the bad stuff happens and you're on meds to exist you're really helpless you know so that should be a, a big factor for anyone who feels like they have to take their meds yeah. is to make yourself less helpless in that way. And before you go on from, from the medicine thing, I imagine like me, if you were in a wreck and had a yield side in your spleen, you would be like, take me to the hospital where there's a surgeon that can, can, can rectify this. But when it comes to the day-to-day -day ongoing health, that's where you're drawing the line and saying in 90% of the instances, we probably shouldn't be using modern medicine. Exactly. Okay. Yes. So, uh, but that brings up a good point that I want to say to all of your listeners who are in the medical field and see the problems. We need to start creating our private society hospitals. Agreed. Because there's going to be a point where even if I have something sticking out of my spleen, that hospital won't take me in. You know, the regular hospital mm -hmm. won't take me in. Yeah. So, um, I've also gotten out of the health insurance. I am into... There's, as part of Obamacare, there was an alternative called um, health share co-ops, mm 
Okay. And all of the ones I've found are Christian-based, um, but a lot of them will take you even if you're not part of the, the Christian community. Um, so it's not insurance, but you have a little bit of sharing of potential burden should something bad happen. And they're much more affordable, I mean, infinitely more affordable than than what the regular insurance is. And you're not under their control anymore. So it's a, it's a total win-win um, for a lot of people. And I, I reinforce that for you, that some of them, like, some of them you say you're Christian, some of them they don't care. And so, some are very regimented, like one that my son and his wife looked into, they were like, they wanted you to send church records to prove that you went to church. And that's... That's actually part of why they're more affordable. They can do whatever they want. They can run their plan however they want. They can tell people, no, you don't qualify for coverage because you're like, well, you're 600 pounds. So we think you're going to die tomorrow. So we're not going to take you on today, right? Like, and, and I think that's how it should be. You have freedom of choice there. Yeah. I, I've been very happy with it. I've never used it. I've had it for about <laughs> three years, and I've never had to use it. Um, you know, it's got a high deductible. Sure. So if I take my kids or myself somewhere, I just pay out of pocket. I'm still way ahead of the game. Yep. You know, I'm paying two fifty a month instead of like eighteen hundred for Kaiser. Yep. So anyways, um so that's healthcare. Healthcare as we can see right now, the medical tyranny is huge and we need to withdraw support from healthcare in any way possible. Food. The food is a massive system of control. So and with every bite of processed food you're poisoning yourself. So the simple baby step there is don't buy processed food. You know, I'm not even going to tell people stop going to the grocery store because that's a big lifestyle change. Sure. But just buy real food and cook it at home. You know, that's huge. You'll feel better. Your budget will be better. Everything will be better. Um, and obviously, shop locally, farmer's markets if you can. Grow your own is the best. But, you know, again, for the average person, that's that's a big step. Yeah, if it, if it has an ingredients list, it's probably not something you should buy. I know that sounds like really restrictive, but like no. I don't. If it's a blend of herbs and it tells you what herbs are in it, that's not what I mean. But if you if it actually has a list of ingredients, it's probably not good. Because <laughs> yeah. if you buy carrots, there's there's no. Did you notice there's no list of ingredients? It, doesn't, it says carrots, right? Like, it doesn't say, like, monosodium glutamate or, you know, um, or, or like, uh, uh, soybean oil or, or what But when you buy peanut butter, you do need to look. Yeah. Because they'll throw soybean oil and sugar and high fructose mm-hmm. corn syrup in there. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, my next couple things are corporate media, political theater, and distraction theater. Okay. Just say no. <laughs> You know, it's carefully scripted theater designed to make you scared, no matter which side of anything you're on. It's designed to make you scared and think the other side is literally going to kill you with their behavior. So, like, the Amish didn't have COVID, right? Well, because they didn't have a TV is the joke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? You know, and I'm um, sure some Amish people probably did get COVID. And you know what they did? They ate chicken soup and they went back to living. Exactly. Yeah. They probably didn't know, like, it was COVID. Maybe they had it, but they thought it was the flu because it sure as hell seems like the flu. And, and like, they, they just didn't care, right? Mm-hmm. So any kind of thing that's coming on the news as a divide thing and a distraction thing, just see it for what it is. Can you impact it? 
if you can't impact it, don't let it impact you. You know, this mm-hmm. whole Trump-Biden thing, did he get elected properly or not? Is oh, Can we do anything about it? There's, nope. I know a man who's trying to do something about it. And it's, what are we in? July. Yeah. It's eight months later. Yeah. His case is still being kicked down the road. Yeah. We can't do anything about this except no. step away. So... Don't you think of that? Don't you look at that guy and just think, wouldn't you? Wouldn't he be such a happier human if he was putting whatever energy he is into that, into doing something for himself and his family? But he thinks he is. That's the danger, right? He believes what he's doing. I guarantee you, I'm doing this for my children and their grandchildren. Okay. Yeah. So that's the thing: is don't expect the system to give you anything of value. It's not gonna. Hmm. You know. Um, banking. So, you know, banking is the other huge system of control. And we don't, this is something I've just started getting into. So if I say something that's a little not technically accurate, the gist of it's still true. Sure. Every deposit we have creates more money than is actually in existence. Every mortgage we have creates more money than Mm -hmm. is actually existent. They sell your mortgage 10 times over to create more investments, right? It's all a big freaking Ponzi scheme. And when we take our digital dollars out of these systems, we don't take their loans, we don't put our money in their banks, we don't use their credit cards, we have just done our part to reduce that fake money system of control. Um, it's. I was just listening to a guy from Canada talk, and I'm sure our system is very similar to theirs. But... You get a mortgage for $400,000, they sell it 10 times over for $4 million of investment now that's out there, and somehow you're liable for all $4 million to the investors. I didn't quite get it, um, but this was what he did. So, And I've, I've heard other things along these lines. It, it's just incredible what they do with the, the banking system. Those numbers might be a little bit off, but the reality is there, like, you know, if you look at a $400,000 mortgage, you're liable for what you have to repay. Uh, but it's a, that's a lot more than four hundred grand. The way that that might become $4 million of debt isn't that it's all your debt. It magnifies. So you buy a $400,000 house and you take out a $400,000 mortgage, and then you end up with a repayment obligation to the bank of $1.2 million over 30 years, let's say. Right. They'll take that obligation that you've had on their accounts receivable and they'll take a portion of that and they'll they'll say, you know, every year this is coming in, they'll borrow from another inter institution through inter institutional lending and turn that into a deposit which then creates another mortgage. Right? And so the other side of it is like say you bought the four hundred thousand dollar house. Well, the bank doesn't get the $400,000. I sold it to you. So I get the 400000 What am I going to do with it? Put it in my pocket? No, I go put it in another bank. Now they're going to loan against that. And where people go wrong with the 10% reserve, since you're new to this, this is an interesting uh, question for you. If I deposit $100,000 into the bank, of off that $100,000, how much can the bank lend with a 10% reserve requirement? No, you'd think it'd be ninety thousand. You would think that would be a normal. It's 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 not. Right. The the entire hundred thousand becomes the reserve. Right. 
So I can loan a million with your hundred. And that's how that guy's, that's how that guy's numbers are right, but they're not, you as the borrower are not responsible for four million dollars worth of debt against a four hundred thousand dollar loan. That's not, that's not possible. Like you, you can go how much you put down times the number of payments times the payment using the APR and you can get how much you're going to pay back. And it's probably going to be three to four times, you know, yeah. even with he, the he was, What he was talking about, though, was more of like the, um, the big short yeah. like mortgage-backed securities and the all the gambling they did. I can't br- bring up all the names of everything. Yeah. See, this is how all these people got these invalid foreclosures hmm. against their properties. So I'd have okay, to look into that. that area, yeah, it's such a muddled that. mess. That honestly, all I can say is I don't need to know. I'm yeah. taking my money out. Yeah, gotcha. You know, because it, it doesn't serve anybody. Hmm. So, you know, like one thing I did is I rolled all of my investment money out of the stock market many years ago. And I started making private loans. Ooh. Through the self-directed IRA. Ooh. Not of bad. Course, now, while we're facing hyperinflation, that's not looking like such a good bargain to, for me anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so... Fortunately, it's all the family members, and, yeah. and we have that family trust that I'm not going to yeah. – it's for property, so okay. I'll, yeah. I'll be kept whole. But it's just an interesting way to look at things, you know. It's, it's very richest man in Babylon philosophy. They, he, in that book, it was referred to as renting money. You were mm-hmm. renting your money, and that's that's like renting real estate. That's Okay, right. cool. But, but see, now I know that my nieces and nephews – have land. They all three have homesteads now. That's great. Because I loaned them the money for it. And so I now know I can go to three different places if I get run out of California. <laughs> <laughs> Solid. Solid. And they already know that, that that's what I'm expecting. So, yeah. Mm. Um, anyways, so, you know, for, for our banking, it's like the usual things. You know, in the short term, cash is still tolerable, but it's being eroded. Gold and silver, crypto, real estate, you know, the things that, that will hold value when the dollar's no longer here is, is what we want to look at. Um, the government systems of registration and licensure and control. So if you're looking for a way to earn income, if you get into something like medicine or even haircutting, you're going to be highly controlled. So you you want to look into alternate methods where you can do things where you're not so controlled. So, you know, there's new things coming up like these private societies. So, again, it's something I haven't looked into, but apparently people are setting up these private societies and the legal system can't touch them hmm. because they're not incorporated and they're not under the legal jurisdiction. And so they're able to to, you know, do the freedom kind of things. That, that we think you should be able to do in a private contract, right? Um, I think that covers the bulk of what I've done. You know, and I'm building out a homestead here in my suburban neighborhood. I have about a half an acre, so I'm raising chickens, um, actually, you know, from hatchlings. So I have a rooster and some hens, and so we incubate babies every now and then. So I'm, you know, just trying to build... My local community, I've got something called the Suburban Homestead Mutual Aid Group where we meet right now once a month and, you know, we have lessons and we do projects and we're just building our relationships right now 
You know, mm. most of us knew each other, but we're still in relationship building because things aren't serious enough yet for us to really know we've we've only got each other. But I think, you know, we may get to that point, especially since we're in California. I call the Bay Area Stepford County Central because it's like living in Stepford Wives. But um, Do you ever think about leaving? I do, <laughs> but the rest of my family isn't there yet. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of... It's like, okay, well, I'm supposed to stay here and show that, you know, there's alternatives here because, yeah. you know, not everyone's going to be able to leave. So we need to be able to stay and dig in our heels and and be okay. I don't know, maybe in a year or two, that won't be an option anymore. Mm. And then we'll leave. And like I said, I have three places to go with all my family members. So I think that's a good exit plan because we may get to a place where the average person who has not thought the way you have won't be able to leave. Like, like right now you say, you, you know, you can't, but what you're doing is based on your family and how you feel about them, you're deciding not to leave. There does become a point at which leaving becomes difficult, if not impossible, even if you've changed your mind. But you have laid the groundwork so that you have a place to go. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, I know. Because I listen to you and it's like, oh, I need to buy something. And then I realize, well, I already have three properties. I'll just foreclose on my nephew. <laughs> <laughs> They're not mine necessarily, yeah, but I'd yeah. be welcome to them. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're good. Yeah, I'm loaning you some more money. You're building a tiny house out there. I don't really want to. Oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> you know, it's about building your small community, building self-reliance. You know, are you collecting water? That's huge, especially in California where we've got all these drought things going on. You know, you yeah. feed yourself. yeah. You know, do you have any renewable resources? These things matter. And we've been so conditioned by, you know, our utilities and the government and the the grocery store to think it's always going to be there, but it's not. I'm feeling like we need to bring back the cider houses and the corner pubs and the ale houses of the, you know, the the, the 18th century. Um, that's That's where the ideals that were the original foundation of this republic were born. It was people speaking to each other instead of screaming at each other across a, a chasm that we call the inner that they wouldn't even have recognized, right? Like we, we used to get together and mm-hmm. we don't. So I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I always ask the question about leaving, especially, you know, California is on the list of the five places I, I would leave the fastest. But, you know, if you're not going to, then – then that's what you need to do. You need to have that community restoration. And I I do have some optimism and hope that maybe, just maybe, this was so overplayed that the blowback is, is something that maybe will overwhelm the system to a degree. Because you're, you've been around like me a while. Like a lot of these people that are in our audience and all, they – you know, they're 22 years old and you think you have been around when you're 22 and when you're 50, you realize how dumb you were when you thought you'd been around when you were 22. Um, and so you've seen very clearly the slow incremental erosion over the past three, four decades where someone that's only been around 20 years maybe hasn't because they've only, they only really have a, you know, you're 10. What do you know? Right? Like you have maybe a decade to reflect on at most. So, you don't really see it when it's static or metal. That's how it works. And it seems to me like when the, the COVID switch got thrown, 
it went hyperdrive overnight. They used it as an opportunity, whether they caused it and did it or whether it, it they lucked into it and did it. But I think even in a crisis, you can go too far too fast. And I think that's why there's – I have never seen so much resistance. And I've never seen people organizing in real life since the dawn of the Internet the way they are right now. So I – And I think the government's freaked out about it. I don't know how you feel about that. It looks to me like they're very freaked out, and that's why they're ginning all this shit up about the threat of white supremacy, whatever the hell that's about. Like, because, like, oh shit, they're pissed. You know, it's like when you you're working on your beehive and you're like, ah, I don't need the, I don't need my my bee suit. I'll just throw a veil on, you know. And everything's going well, and you you pull that frame and you you angle it back a little bit and you roll them, and you're like, ah, oh, you can't now. It's too now. You got to run. Right, like you got, like you got a problem. Like I'm not afraid of a bee. I am afraid of twenty thousand of them. I, I'm just, uh -huh. I'll admit it. Like I, I don't like twenty thousand bees trying to kill me. Um, and I think like the government feels like maybe they poked the hornet's nest a little too hard, and you know they're retreating into their little alcoves and they're trying to get the 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 enforcers to go out and they're using the education system. They're using the corporations because um, this woke shit is not just in our schools. Freaking Raytheon, Coca-Cola, like, those are two giant corporations, but they're also, like, they don't go together. Coca-Cola and Raytheon don't go together, but they're, they both have this, like, woke indoctrination. I just had somebody email me when we talked about Nat Geo on the on the show about how woke they've become and how it's, it was a gentleman that's about my age and grew up like I did reading Nat Geo in school, where, like, it was amazing. Like, it took you on these adventures. And it's sad to us to see this now. And a guy emailed in and said he quit after six years because he was told, as a straight white male, he had no future. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you should have lawyers, like, beating on your door over this. And you don't. No. Like, and that tells you we got all kinds of problems. But, like, you don't, you don't do this. Unless and you don't go this fast unless you feel like oh shit we have to like the bees are pissed off and so the question now is does does do the uh, do the people with no bee suit on win or do the bees and history has shown the bees win <laughs> right. I hope well you know they can't control us if we don't need them yeah that's yeah. a key point and what we need to mentally shift is feeling like we need them. Boy, if you want to just sum up the plight of the Native Americans, there every uh, every Aboriginal society that was ever destroyed by colonization, that's exactly mm -hmm. why it was felt they needed to be destroyed and needed to be brought under heel because they didn't need you. Um, I think it was Custer that said something like, "There's never been a people that have lived this free or have been this free or something like that." Like before he ended up, you know, dead. Um, But he was right, like, because they did, they were free because they didn't need you. Mm -hmm. We had nothing to offer them. Like, well, if you do what we say, we'll give you help. We don't need that. Like, as you see, like, going to um, a Native American tribe before everything went sideways and saying, but if you, if you come underneath what we want, we'll give you food. They would have said, yeah, so? Like, we don't need you for that. Well, we'll give you health care. No. You know, we'll give you clothing. We I mean, what would you will give you housing? Like, what could you have possibly offered those people? And the answer was nothing. And I, I think that's the most frightening, terrifying thing to the apparatus of authority is a people who do not need you. 
And I think that's what you're advising people to become, become someone who doesn't need them. Jen Armani would call it the crypto savage, right? Like, be the crypto savage. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I think if we build enough of these small communities and we're living honorably, you know, that, that word's big, kind of been overused, but, you know, with integrity and in alignment with nature, I do think there's, I, I do think we can be left alone. I know that sounds like maybe naive, but. Yeah. I don't think you so. Know, I, I just, if we're not poking the beast, I don't know. No, I think we can be left more alone, might be the way to put it. Like, we, we can have more, I don't know that we'll ever be fully left alone. I also do think there is a point where if you do it right and you are dispersed and you are decentralized, if they can get what they want from the majority, then the rest of us are too complicated. We're too hard. It's just, it's, like you said, if we're not, I, I think the people that are going to have problems are the ones like that, that do poke the beast constantly mm-hmm. and egg it on and try to make a spectacle because then you're convenient for them, right? I think what you're saying is to try to be ungovernable and inconvenient to attempt to govern. Like just and, you're and- not worth it. Yeah, but another key factor is understanding where your rights come from and and holding up to that. Mm. That's where when you let the system know that you know what your rights are and if they come and hurt you, they pay the karmic debt, that's where they will turn around and walk away. Not at, not every low-level person, but at the highest levels, when people have pushed back and it's gone up the ranks, they're left alone. I've seen people's first-hand stories over and over and over again. I, I would have to say that I've seen that work, so if, and I've seen it fail. I, I don't think there's any guarantees, and I think that that doesn't mean it's not worth standing up for what is right and what your rights are. Um, but I think that I don't think I am comfortable with sounding like if you stand under what is right and you stand under the rights that you have naturally – that you're guaranteed a victory because I do not believe that because for every person I can show you that did so, I can show you somebody who didn't, even if they were right. And even if they did everything, you know, kind of by the book that you're talking about, not of course their book, but the book, um, it still doesn't always work. And you shouldn't believe that it should. I mean, nothing worth doing is without risk, I guess is Mm -hmm. what I'm saying. Absolutely. Cool. Well, hey, Suzanne, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you. We went almost two hours. That is wow. that is not <laughs> typical of one of my interviews. Um, so clearly you had a lot of really cool, interesting things to say. I would ask you to tell people how to learn more about you, but uh, generally speaking, when people have an email address that doesn't use a domain name other and there's no things in the uh, website or blog field, they're just people that want to come have a conversation with us. So if you do have any resources, you can let people know now. Otherwise, I just appreciate you being with us today. Yeah, no, I mean, if people want to get a hold of me, you know, I can, I don't know, look at the comments or something. Sure. And if there's enough interest, maybe I'll put a, an email up. But okay. mostly I just, you know, have things I want to say, and it's nice to have a medium to say it on. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you for being with us today. All right. Thank you. Well, great interview there. Let's wrap things up as quickly as possible since things went so long. And I just wanted to remind you that you can always help support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at where? 
Where is it, guys? Come on now. Tspaz.com. That's right, tspaz.com. You do your online shopping there no matter what you buy. You help support the show and the work that we do. I do not have an item of the day for you today, but you can see all of the reviews that I've done there at any time by just going to tspaz.com. All the categories are in alphabetical order. You can click on any one of them, scroll through, and see what I recommend there. And if it's there, I own it. I use it, I bought it, and if I need it again, I would buy it again or it wouldn't be there. There's even items I've reviewed, and then when I needed a new item, I went back and took a look. And sometimes I find something that's so much better, I go back and take the old item down. Whatever's the best recommendation that I have at the time for the money, that's what you're going to find. But remember, it doesn't matter what you buy. All that matters is before you shop online, you stop by tspaz.com and begin your shopping there, and you'll help us out along with the work that we do. Also consider becoming a member of the MSB. Go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more about how to do that. If you become an MSB member, you'll get discounts. The discounts will pay for your membership and then some, so it's profitable and you'll help support the show and the work that we do. Also make sure to follow me on social media, various options there. Um, three, I'd say the three best because I actually not only am involved, but I engage. Uh, are going to be MeWe, Float, and Telegram Channel if you just want to hear from me, or the Telegram Channel and Group if you want to both hear from me and hear from others. Uh, check it out today. You can just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Get Social to find all the different ways to connect with me. And with that, let's go ahead and wrap up with our song of the day today. This song, again, as we continue through our weeks featuring Survivor, is called Man Against the World. And I've mentioned several times that kind of what blew them up, and I also feel kind of limited their total overall success and made them underrated, is how they were involved in movies in the 80s, specifically Rocky and The Karate Kid. Today's song was originally supposed to be part of Rocky IV. And it's called Man Against the World. It didn't make the final cut, and so it was released on its own. It didn't do that great in the United States. I think it topped the charts. at The highest it ever moved in the United States was 80, the eight, number 86 song. So a a lot better than any song I ever released, though, so it's still very good. It's an amazing song. It, it is very, very much kind of... Uh, it's got that kind of crescendo component to it, very orchestra uh, sounding. Again, this is another one of those pieces by Survivor that I could see Queen in their heyday having have done this song. And again, I am, I am, <laughs> I, I am absolutely not comparing uh, Jimmy Jameson to Freddie Mercury, even though they both have really amazing voices. There's, there is no, they're in different classes. What I'm saying is it's in that vein, and I think that's how underrated this band is. And I, I'm sure that that Queen would have done it somewhat differently, but just listen to this song and imagine before we lost Freddie, had this song been presented to Queen and said, hey, we think you guys might want to cut this and what that might have been like. Um, again, that's that's how underrated I think the band is. And I also love this song from a standpoint, I think we've all felt this way at times, A Man Against the World. I think the message from today's show, though, is it is not a man against the world. It's many men and many women standing against the tyranny that seems so prevalent in the world today. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
Two. 